Uh, we're in, if you're new or visiting, we're in a series called Shoe Leather Wisdom in the book of James. And uh, this morning we are covering verses 15 and 16. Uh, we'll start there and we'll get to 18. So, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Last week we spent uh, our time in the second half of this passage, uh, and we were dealing with the whole side of temptation and sin. And this week we're going to focus on the first half of the passage, along with verses 17 and 18. So let's pray, and we'll jump right into it, all right? Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the book of James. Uh, it has been a delight to walk through. We've gotten a lot out of it. I've gotten a lot out of it, and I know a lot of friends have as well. As we've come up in comments and emails, and a lot of people are wrestling and dialoguing with it, and you're getting some good stuff out of it. This morning, Lord, is a, a critical idea. And uh, would you help us anchor it in our hearts in the right way? And that's on your goodness. And so we give that to you. Uh, we ask you to validate it. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So what James is doing here is laying clearly at our feet that the problem is ours and not God's. All right? Do you get that? Okay. Well, if you're looking for something to blame, if you're looking for the source, if you're looking for the root, James lays it at our feet. He says it's our deceitful desires that cause the problem. God is not affected by those kind of things. And we'll take a look at that as we go through this morning. So this brings us to one of the big ideas about God, and that is his immutability. That's a big 50-cent word, right? And uh, people like to use it. But the immutability of God. So what is immutability of God? Immutability of God is an attribute that God is unchanging in his character, in his will, and in his covenant promises. Right? So God is unchanging in his character, will, and covenant promises. Uh, if you go back to the Westminster Catechism, it says this. The Shorter Catechism says that God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those things do not change. And uh, you see the scriptures listed there uh, for all this. Uh, and I would add that uh, when we're talking about Jesus, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same immutability that applies to God applies to Jesus as well. God's immutability defines all God's... This article goes on to say that God's immutability defines all God's other attributes. God is immutably wise, merciful, good. We're going to focus on goodness this morning. And gracious. The same may be said about God's knowledge. God is almighty and God is omnipotent, having all power. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. God is omniscient, knows everything, eternally and immutably so. Infiniteness and immutability in God are mutually supportive and imply each other. An infinite and changing God is inconceivable since there's no contradiction in the definition. Now that's a lot of words, right? But here's the key point. Here's the point that's being made. 
God being immutable is who he is. So when we talk about his goodness, we talk about his nature, that is steadfast. God is steadfast in his goodness. And a, a clear point has to be made here. God being immutable doesn't mean he's frozen. Right? You get this picture of immutable like it's locked in stone, like it doesn't move, like uh, Plato's perfect uh, spirit world. Uh, God's not frozen. He's not rigid. He's not locked into place. It, immutability doesn't mean he can't move. All right? He can move. Uh, he's very fluid. After all, God is a spirit. So he can move all over the place in any way, which way he wants to. Rather, what this means is that whenever, wherever, or however he moves, he is consistently the same immutable person as he moves. Does that make sense? Okay, let me say that again. God is very fluid. He is spirit. So what this means is that wherever, whenever, or however he moves, he is consistently the same immutable or unchanging person as he moves. And this gives us great confidence because what it means is he's consistent within his nature. His nature in being, the person who he is, never changes. Right? That's one of the things that impresses us and actually draws us towards, towards God. God will always be immutably consistent in both the way he thinks and the way he operates. In other words, he's dependable. Another aspect is the huge theme in the Bible is the immutability regarding his holiness. Because God is holy and immutably so, or in other words, just use the word unchangingly so, right, for immutable, um, sin has no ability then to grasp or to stick or to tempt to him because he's holy. He has no purchase point. Remember, what's the purchase point in us? It's our deceitful desires. It's the place where our heart goes crooked, right? We know we shouldn't, and yet we do. Why? Because we are bent. There's a brokenness in us. God doesn't have that broken place. He doesn't have that pull, so it can't stick. Um, there's nothing in God for sin to attach to. So look at these next verses with these in mind then. Right. Looking at verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Another translation says shifting shadow. Right? Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. This phrase here, coming down from the Father of lights, is an amazing description, right? Because not only is God good, but he is light, right? There's no darkness in him. We uh, think of darkness, uh, uh, you know, movies conjure up a lot of darkness. There's no darkness in God. It's not just that he created light as we know it, but he is light. And thus, he is immutable or unchanging in his light. There's no variation or shifting shadow. Uh, the description of God as light is a major theme in Scripture. We won't spend a lot of time, but I do want to just remind you and go through it. Look, look at John 1.4. In him was life. The, light was, the life was the light of men. In other words, the light, life in Jesus is described as light. 
Right? When you looked at them, it's light. It's clear. You can see. It's not dark. You ever look at somebody and they look dark to you? Right? We say, man, they look dark. Right? Yeah. Right? Uh, I think all of us um, were sh- you know, rattled and, and shocked by the shooting in, in Florida this week. Just imagine those poor families. Imagine the fall. That's the rest of their life. That's darkness. And there's darkness in our land. Interesting, in that whole conversation, you hear all this stuff about uh, guns and all safety in schools and shootings. I didn't hear one thing on the national news that said, you know, maybe we ought to turn back to the light. Not one, one phrase. It's all within our solution to fix it. And we're not going to fix it. Okay? So uh, we stand with those families, pray for those families. It won't be a one-day thing for them. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, John 1, 9, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. God describes his entrance as light. Right? And then in John 8, again, Jesus spoke to him saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then Paul uses uh, this description in 1 Timothy, which is a, a gorgeous one. It says, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I had to interrupt the sentence there because Paul writes long sentences, right? So, sorry, I just chopped it off. You can go back and look at the rest of it. But, uh, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is, has immortality and who dwells in, and what's the phrase there? Unapproachable light. Brilliant, penetrating light to the fact that we can't even enter into it. It says no man can see God and live unapproachable light to whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And by the way, this is why we shouldn't take Jesus lightly. Because God in his light is absolutely unapproachable and apart from him providing Jesus so we could see what he liked, we got nothing. There's no way to it. You know, we often think of this, you know, remember the old illustration where you had the cliff on this side and, and then there was the big gap, right? And then there was the, Right on the other side, and, and we think of you know, how to get across that chasm or darkness. But here's another way to think of it. We're in darkness, and there's no way to approach that light. You cannot move into that light. There's no way to walk into that kind of brilliance unless God provided a way for you to be able to see it. And that His name is Jesus. James says that God is the Father of light. So everything we know about light comes from God. And that from this, everything that comes from him is perfect and good. And thus, since his light, nature is immutable, so then is his goodness. Uh, this goes way back. God establishes this theme way back in Exodus. I just read through it and it happened to pop in my mind. But he was talking to Moses and Moses said, let me see your glory. Remember that famous passage, that famous place in history where he says, let me see your glory. And God says, you can't see me or die. But I'll tell you what, there's a, a cleft in the rock, right? That's where the famous song comes from. I hide my soul in the cleft of the rock. He says, I'll walk by, I'll cover you with my hand, but I'll proclaim my glory to you. So when God proclaims his glory, when he talks about who he really is, 
When he talks about, hey, look, when you're looking at me, when you're thinking about who I am, this is what I want you to know. There's so many things he could have said, but what did he say? I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So when this actually happened, what did God proclaim? Well, just a little bit further, Exodus 34, says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, amen. That's not in there, but I'm just, amen. Anybody else with me on that? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Why? Because he's good. He is good. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Amen? Right? But who will by no means clear the guilty. Right? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's the part we all look on because our sin nature catches us there and goes, yeah, I'm doomed. But we miss the first part of the proclamation of his goodness that he is steadfast in his love towards us if we turn to him. In the epistle of Titus, it says the same thing a different way and it's really good. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, right? We didn't get there. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What gives us the ability to be saved? Or what gives us the ability to even know that God's reaching out to us? And I want to suggest to you, it's the goodness and loving kindness of God. His goodness leads us to repentance. Right? Right? We forget that. We forget that He's good. What we're talking about here is the clarity, the holiness, and the goodness of God. It radiates through so much of Scripture, you can't hardly go anywhere without seeing it. And here's the point. The Gospel's called good news, right? The Gospel's called good news, and it's called good news because good news comes from a good God. You don't have bad news come from a bad God or good news come from a bad God. Good news comes from a good God. Right? Our world's got that so twisted around and they talk about the hypocrites in the church and all that stuff. But you know what the attack really is? It's on God. And it's on His goodness. Okay? God is a good person. And I don't mean that in a mamby pam. I mean that in a soul depth type of looking through, the closer you get, the better he resonates. Not like us. The closer you get, the ickier we look, right? That's because God is good from the inside out. We're good from the outside in, right? So it all depends how many layers you get through before you find our, our crud. There's no crud in God. There isn't anything to find. It's all good. God is good and good, what's the phrase? All the time. It's not just a slogan, it's a reality. And again, this does not, and I repeat, does not mean that all things we go through are good. This is where we get it all messed up. Okay? There are lots of things we go through that are not good at all. 
The, the shooting in Florida is wicked and evil, and somebody was talking to that kid, and I guarantee you it wasn't God. All right? This thing of, uh, that the Bible's word of exhortation to us is that in spite of evil things happening to us, God is not evil, but rather good. Now, this is where the deception comes in. Let's go back over what we covered last week, the danger of deception. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God made me do it. No, God didn't make me do it. To take a phrase from Flip Wilson, the devil made you do it. Right? If you're old enough to remember that, cry. All right? <laughs> Each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what? Our own desire. Would anybody be willing to admit there's crooked desires inside of us? Right? Right? Anybody go sideways with that and go, why did I do that? Right? And then James is talking very strongly here in the language, don't be deceived. The, the wording here, you can go all the Greek and that stuff, but basically what it means is it, he's actually, people were being deceived, and so he, it's a command, don't be deceived. It's strong language to say, stop thinking the way you're thinking. Because okay? he was worried about some of the people who had gone through stuff and they were starting to think sideways. Why is this such an important point? And what is James getting at? What is the deception? And here's the deception. All right? If we're looking at the deception and we're talking about what it is, here's the deception. It's simply this. God is not good. That's the deception. I'm not saying that he's not good. I'm saying the deception is that God is not good. Not towards you, not towards me, not towards anybody. To understand that deception, we'd have to go back to the Old Testament and the wilderness wanderings, right? We've looked at that quite a bit. If you remember, God promised to lead them out of slavery into a land that flowed with milk and honey. I will give you vineyards. I'm going to give you fields. I'm going to give you houses and orchards you haven't built for yourself. And along the way, they ran into a series of hardships, some by circumstance and some by self-infliction. Right? You ever shoot yourself in the foot? Right? A little open mouth, insert foot. Right? You created your own problem. Uh, well, Israel did that. Lacking both patience and endurance, they allowed their circumstances, and more importantly, their feelings. Their feelings about their circumstances. Your feelings ever lie to you? Right? Ever tell you something that wasn't true and you bit? Right? About their, their feelings about their circumstances to dictate their picture of God and it turned disastrous. Their take? You've not brought us into a land of milk and honey. You have not given us homes, fields, or vineyards. Now note here, just if you know the story and if you don't, just note this. This is a complete loss of memory on the historical point because it was they, not God, who kept them from the promised land. Remember? They wouldn't go in. And then they blamed it on God, which just fulfills Proverbs 19.3. A person's own folly or sin leads them to ruin, and yet their heart rages against the Lord. You ever sin and then rage against God like it was His fault? Uh, it, we're weird the way we do that. Okay? We flip it. The other thing we do is if we ask God something... There's two big sins here. One is um, we sin and then we rage against God because we know we're guilty and we're going to get judged. And we think that solves the problem. The other thing is we get mad when God doesn't give us what we want. 
Is it ever occurred to us that what we want may be bad for us? Even if it seems like a really good thing. That God might just be a little smarter than us? Do we ever give him credit for that? God's response is very different. Theirs was, you actually brought us out here to kill us. That's why you did this. What were they? they were attributing evil to God's heart, evil to his motives. You don't love me. You designed this to kill us. All right? What was God's actual heart on the matter? Look at God's heart here. This is found in Deuteronomy 8. Moses is telling you, he said, He led you through that vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes, or another translation is fiery serpents, right? And scorpions. He brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known. To what? To humble and to test you to see if you would react truly. Why? So that in the end, it might go well with you. God is always looking at the end of things, not at the beginning or middle of things. We're really good to the middle of things. Then we fade. Right? And God is saying, look, everything that happens in your life is not good. Everything that happens in your life, there can be some really bad stuff. You think those people in Florida are any different than us? Do you think they led any different lives? No, they're good families. Some real evil happened to them. Could that happen to us? Yes. There was a grandmother uh, just up here that thought her grandson was acting weird, so she went in her bedroom, read uh, his diary, and called the police because he was planning the exact same thing right up here in Mukilteo. That's not too far away. Right? What he's saying here is that all the things in the beginning and the middle might not be good things. But if you stay with it, I will turn all things for good because my intention for you is that in the end of things it will go well for you. God's intention is always that it will go well for us. Even if that means we die of cancer or something, we go home to heaven. Going home to heaven is a good thing. Have we forgotten that? Well, I think we've forgotten it as a country. What we've said is, uh, United States of America is a good thing. I'd rather stay here than go to heaven. Short-term prospect. Right? Short-term thinking. God wants it to go well in the end with us. James is saying, as Paul does in Corinthians 10.6, don't fall into this deception that God is not good. Do you think that's a problem today, by the way? I think it's a major one. Don't desire evil as they did, and don't be deceived by evil as they did. Don't crave lustfully in the wilderness like they did, and then flip the picture. Don't make the same kind of mistake of saying, if my circumstances are bad, then God is bad. That's what we're saying here. No. Circumstances are bad, God is good. That's why you call out to Him. Pray to Him. James is saying, there's somebody whispering all right, but it isn't God. He's writing this epistle to his people and saying, straighten out here. There is an enemy and you have to be not tempted to think evilly of God. Think of that first temptation. Remember, way back in the garden, did God really say? You know what the answer to that is? Yes, he did. That's all you would have to say. Yes, he did. And no, we're not. That would have been the end of it. Think how history would be different, by the way. Amazing, huh? The suggestion or hint here is that 
Some were already in James's uh, flock of influence there. Uh, the suggestion was that some were already doing this because of the terrible trial that they were going through, right? Well, we t- this wasn't pretty. They, they were getting hauled out of their homes. Matter of fact, it was Saul, later to be the Apostle Paul, who was dragging them out of their homes, beating them, and the insinuation that a number of them were killed. They lost their homes. They had to flee for their lives. They had to scatter across the countryside trying to find relatives and stuff. They, they had no way to start over. Um, They were doing this because of the terrible trial they were going through. And James is exhorting them to stop. Yes, what you went through is bad, but he is good. Don't twist the picture just because of your circumstances. The exhortation here is to keep believing in God's goodness and see the thing all the way through to the end. You ever cave in and, and fail with God and then later realize, oh, man, was that bad. If I had just hung in there, it would have all turned. And, and you just got egg on your face. I've done that some, in some very embarrassing ways. Anybody else? Or am I the only one? Oh, well, good. You guys are awesome. <laughs> no, I know why you're quiet. Yeah. <coughs> See it all the way. The promise is that God will make all things right, all things good. Don't give up on God's goodness or promises ever, not for anything. One of the greatest encouragements in this is actually comes from the early church. Uh, I've been reading through early church history again, and, uh, and they praise God's greatness and goodness in the face of extreme torture and martyrdom. Uh, I'm reading a book on the early Christian history called Four Witnesses by Rod Bennett, and he chronicles the lives of Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, and Arrhenius of Lyons. And in these men are recorded the earliest records of the Christian martyrs. And let me just read to you two of the stories. One of a woman, one of a man who did not cast evil on God because of what they were going through and clung to his promises, his name and his goodness despite their ordeal. Right? How did they face it? The first story is the story of a girl named Blandina. And... uh, It was talking about on the day when uh, several had been martyred, they had been whipped, fed to the wild beasts, and roasted in what was known as the iron chair. Uh, Blandina's torture was going to be taken to a whole new level. And it reads like this. Blandina, through whom Christ proved that things which men regard as mean, unlovely, and contemptible are by God deemed worthy of great glory because of her love for him shown in power and not in vaunted appearance. In other words, she wasn't a looker. Right? She was an average, dumpy-looking gal. She was of nondescript. There wasn't anything exceptional about her. That's what he's saying. It says, When we were all afraid, and even the mentor of Blandina, who herself was facing the ordeal of martyrdom, was in agony lest she should be unable to make the bold confession of Christ because of bodily weakness, Blandina was filled with such power that those who took in turns to subject her to every kind of torture from morning to night were exhausted by their efforts and confessed themselves beaten. They could think of nothing else to do to her. They were amazed that she was still breathing, for her whole body was mangled and her wounds gaped. They declared that torment of any one kind was enough to part soul and body. Of One of these was enough to kill a person. All right? let alone a succession of torments of such extreme severity. But the blessed woman, wrestling magnificently, grew in strength as she proclaimed her faith and found refreshment, rest, and insensibility to her sufferings in uttering the words, I am a Christian, we do nothing to be ashamed of. 
because they demanded that she renounce Christ and profess Caesar. And she absolutely wouldn't. And it says they ripped her apart. And even in that state of being, she professed Christ and said she wouldn't be ashamed of him. The next story is one, uh, some of you may know, Polycarp. Tremendous person in church history. Uh, We don't know much about him because it was a long time ago, but if you want to take this uh, just where you have uh, the Apostle John, right? and uh, legend has it they tried to uh, boil the Apostle John in oil. It didn't work, couldn't kill him. So they put him on a rock out in the Mediterranean known as Patmos, and he wrote this little book called Revelation. So John personally minted Polycarp. Polycarp is one of the living testimonies attached to the apostolic times. So you have John who mentored Polycarp. And if you go through the train, Polycarp lived a long time and he mentored another guy by the name of Ambrose. Ambrose became the Bishop of Milan. Ambrose went on and he had uh, a huge influence and mentored another guy by the name of Augustine. Right? Quite Quite a trail. Quite a trail. His story is, it reads like this. So he was the bishop in Arrhenius' home church in Smyrna. So that's back um, towards the Holy Land. And uh, it seems like a, a group of the believers were, were herded up together. And uh, they, uh, there weren't a lot of them, but they, they remained steadfast under torture. And the whole mob, astonished at the heroism of God-loving and God-fearing race of the Christians shouted, away with the atheists, let Polycarp be searched for. So in other words, it wasn't enough to kill them. They figured, let's get the lead guy and we'll take him out too. And so a massive manhunt went out for Polycarp. And uh, it says, having pastored the church at Smyrna since apostolic times and been himself a disciple of the apostles, that would have been John, Polycarp was well known by Christian and pagan alike as the foremost bishop of the entire region. He became, therefore, the object of a massive manhunt and finally, after a search of several days, was overtaken by the police in a farmhouse outside the city. When he heard of their arrival, he came down and conversed with them. And the onlookers were wondering at his age and his composure and that there was so much ado about arresting a man so old. He's in his 90s. Then, late as it was, he at once, this is Polycarp, ordered food and drink to be served to them as much as they wished and begged them to allow him an hour for undisturbed prayer. They granted his request and there he stood wrapped in prayer, so overflowing with the grace of God that for two hours he was unable to stop speaking. Those that heard him were struck with admiration and many were sorry that they had come to fetch so old a man of God. When he had at last ended his prayer in which he remembered all that had met him at any time, both small and great, both known and unknown, Fame, the whole world that he had run in. The moment of departure arrived, and seating him on a donkey, they led him into the city. There was a trial, of course, the usual mockery of justice, and the defendant, also true to form, quickly found himself standing in the arena. Yet, as Polycarp entered the arena, a voice was heard from heaven, Be strong, Polycarp, and act manfully. It says, Nobody saw the speaker, but those of our people who were present heard the voice. Observing from his official box, the proconsul of the city gave Polycarp one last chance to apostatize. When the proconsul insisted and said, take the oath and I will set you free. Revile Christ. Polycarp replied, for six and eighty years. So in other words, he had served the Lord for eighty-six years. Okay, so he's probably in his nineties, uh, late nineties somewhere. We're talking uh, an amazing old guy here. 
For six and eighty years I have been serving him, and he has done no wrong to me. How then dare I blaspheme my king who has saved me? That's an incredible statement and famous throughout history. But he again insisted and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. This is the proconsul. And he answered, If you flatter yourself that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you suggest, and if you pretend not to know me, let me, tell, let me frankly tell you I am a Christian. If you wish to learn the teaching of Christianity, fix a day and let me explain. Hmm. Let's dialogue. Let's talk. Well, said the proconsul, I have wild beasts and shall have you thrown before them if you do not change your mind. Call for them, he replied. To us a change from better to worse is impossible. But it is noble to change from what is evil to what is good. In other words, he said, you don't get it. I'm going to heaven. Bring out anything you want. Not going to change my attitude. Then the proconsul said, well, if you make little to the beast, I shall have you consumed by fire unless you change your mind. And this is one of the most famous statements in history. It says, the fire which you threaten, replied Polycarp, is one that burns for a little while and after a short time goes out. You evidently do not know the fire of judgment to come and the eternal punishment which awaits the wicked. But why do you delay? Go ahead and do what you want. Then the thing was done more quickly than can be told. The crowds being in such a great hurry, they grabbed lumber and wood from everything. Without delay, uh, the materials prepared by the pyre was piled up around him. And when they intended to nail him as well, he said, leave me just as I am. He who enables me to endure the fire will also enable me to remain in the pyre unbudgingly without the security afforded by your nails. So they did not nail him, but they fastened him and there he was with his hands behind him, fastened like a ram towering over a large flock, ready for sacrifice, a holocaust prepared, prepared and acceptable to God. And he looked up to heaven and he said, O Lord God, O Almighty Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, God of angels and hosts and all creation, and of the whole race of saints who live under your eyes, I bless thee because thou hast seen fit to bestow upon me this day and this hour that I may share among the number of the martyrs the cup of thine anointed and to rise to eternal life both in soul and in body in virtue of the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May, be, may I be accepted among them in thy sight today as a rich and pleasing sacrifice. And when he had wafted up the amen and finished the prayer, the men attending to the fire lit it. And when a mighty flame shot up, we who were privileged to see it saw a wonderful thing. And we have been spared to tell the tale to the rest. And evidently, in his uh, martyrdom, when that happened, they just let the other ones go, right? And that's how they could tell the story. They said that the fire uh, produced the likeness of a vaulted chamber, like a ship's sail bellowing to the breeze and surrounding the martyr's body as with a wall. And he was in the center of it. Not as of burning flesh, but like bed that, bread that's baking or as gold and silver refined in the fire. In fact, we even caught an aroma such as the scent of incense or some other precious spice. And at length, seeing that his body could not be consumed by the fire, those impious people ordered an executioner to approach him and run a dagger into him. This done, there issued a flow of blood so great that it quenched the fire and the fire was put out and the whole crowd was struck by the difference between the unbelievers and the elect. Right? Now, question this morning. Those are intense stories. What do these stories teach us? 
something we've known all our lives and it goes back, and, but we tend to forget that God's goodness supersedes our circumstances and that His goodness is an anchor in the midst of difficulties, trials, and persecutions. That's what James was reminding his readers of. Right? And James adds this thought. Of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's verse 18. Just as he had brought Israel out of Egypt and just as he raised Jesus from the dead, so he was leading out the first Christians. And I want to suggest this morning he is still leading us today. In his goodness. He means it for good and he will bring it about that it might go well with us in the end. And that's why James says this in verse 12. He said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So the issue is here, we need to be a people that stand the trial. I don't know your trials, you don't know mine. All right? Ours are relatively insignificant compared to the rest of the world. That doesn't mean they're not real. It just means what the rest of the world goes through. There are many dying for Christ right now, this moment, as we stand here. But what it means is that we have to stand the trial. There was never a promise that we would never face trials. There was never a promise that it would all go well for us and we'd get the BMW in the car and hair and then wave the go-to-heaven ticket and we walk in and, man, aren't you glad to have me? That was not how the story went. The story went, we have to suffer for him. As he suffered for us, so we must suffer for him. We must stand the trial. Now, I don't know what your trial is, but we need to lean into it and not accuse God of not being good. We need to lean into the trial and make sure that we confess his goodness that's the reason we can stand the trial. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, walk through this this morning and as James lays this out and as we've binged around in other parts of your scripture, it's a true word. Every story in the Bible backs this up. We know the trials that we are to face and we know we are to face them in faith and with courage and that we are to be strong and steadfast. And Father... Uh, that is a challenge for us. We have grown up comfortable. We have grown up um, with good things. And our hope is that we could avoid the trial. Yet, Lord, we know that's probably not how it's going to go. So I'm praying that you will give us as a church, not the whole church also, but Northview, give us resolution of heart on your goodness. Let us not cast aspersions against you that somehow you don't care or you don't love us or you're not good. May we be compelled by your goodness to stand the trial like the stories we read this morning. I give that to you in your name. Amen.